Do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. That is a quote about leadership by Rolf Waldo Emerson. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. This week's topic is leadership. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and have breakfast with a former NFL defensive back. For those of you who are not in the U.S., like our friends overseas, the NFL stands for the National Football League, not soccer, football. (laughs) Anyway, he was a fourth-round draft pick by the Miami Dolphins, and before that, he played with a national championship team under Pete Carroll, khaki pants, one of the great football coaches of our time. I loved hearing his stories about playing at the highest athletic level, but I was even more fascinated by his understanding of effective leadership. I went home after our chat and pondered what leadership meant to me. I began to mine through my own encounters with great leaders with the aim of better defining the phrase and, not surprisingly, ended up close to home. So, without further ado, let's get into it. I've been thinking a lot about the importance of leadership and what that means. I've also been pondering whether everyone should even aspire to be a leader. Maybe leadership isn't for everyone. Some people are simply happy to follow, and that's totally okay. I thought it might be useful to see what certain titans of industry, politics, or culture might have said about leadership. Innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. That comes from Steve Jobs. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader, John Quincy Adams. And leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that impact lasts in your absence, Sheryl Sandberg. It is better to lead from behind and to put others in front, especially when you celebrate victory when nice things occur. You take the front line when there is danger. Then people will appreciate your leadership. That comes from Nelson Mandela. And finally, the most effective way to do it is to do it. (laughs) And that comes from Amelia Earhart. So there's a lot of range in these quotes, and I'll be honest, there are some that resonate with me far more than others. Curious to hear from you, if you have the time, on what you think about some of these quotes on leadership. Undoubtedly, the most powerful leader in my own life has always been my mother. I don't know whether Amma was a born leader. I get the sense that she's always been kind of bossy, (laughs) for sure. So perhaps it is built into her core programming, if you will. I do know, however, that in her family, i.e. among her parents and siblings, she was the one who called all the shots. 
As I've talked about before, Amma's assumption of her role in the family was a little unusual. She was not a boy, and she was not the oldest of her siblings. And these were two sort of traditional requirements for becoming a leader in a Korean household. But when her mother, my grandmother, began to suffer multiple miscarriages that threatened her life in pursuit of a son, Amma declared to her parents, I'll be your son. Now, from that moment on, Amma forged ahead and pursued avenues that might have appeared risky. Instead of working at the underwear factory during high school, which would have earned her family immediate and badly needed cash, she stayed in school with the help of a generous American benefactor. Instead of getting a job right after graduation, again, to assist with her family's financial situation, she chose to go to nursing school at the encouragement of one of her teachers. Instead of staying in Korea with a job she'd already secured when she graduated from nursing school, she spent every penny of what she saved for over two years, which amounted to 800 bucks, bought a plane ticket to the United States, rented a really crappy apartment in Chicago, and studied to pass the boards in America. And instead of going home, when she failed to pass those boards, she heeded the wisdom of both her father and a fairy godmother on Lakeshore Drive and decided to give it another go. Now, if you haven't heard that story, I'm not going to repeat it here because I've shared it so many times. You're going to want to check back at some of the earlier podcasts. Look for the one that says, Meet Sunny. Sunny is my mother's name. It's a fantastic story about how my mom encounters a psychic on Lakeshore Drive. Getting back to this week's story. Now, when Amma finally got a job at Swedish Covenant Hospital, she was able to secure her visa, which ultimately turned into a green card and full citizenship. And on the back of her status, she was able to sponsor my father, grandfather, both my grandmothers, my aunt and uncle, all of whom came to live with us in our Skokie house for a bit or even longer until they were able to get their footing on American soil and build lives and families of their own. For example, my aunt has a family here in Hoffman Estates. My uncle has a family in Skokie, Illinois. And it's just so lovely to see what they have built based upon coming here through my mother's leadership. I'm reminded of another quote on leadership. And this one is by Rolf Waldo Emerson. Do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Amma quickly rose up the ranks at the hospital, and by the time I was in junior high, she was the director of the most stressful, terrifying department at Swedish, the emergency department. Sometimes she would come home and tell me about arguments she got into at work with patients, doctors, and fellow nurses. She routinely spent evenings poring over a grid filled in with the names of every single nurse who worked in the ER until she mapped out their weekly schedules. And when the hospital was due for inspection, something that she called joint commission, she would stay up all night at the kitchen table, pencil in hand, because nobody used laptops back then. It was a given that she would come home late for days. And then finally, when the ER passed with flying colors, she'd walk through that front door smelling of disinfectants and ammonia, but carrying that crackling aplomb of achievement. The worst part, as the boss 
If someone ever flaked or called in sick or took an unscheduled personal day, it was usually my mom who ended up having to change into her uniform and head to work. By the time I was a teenager, when I saw the hospital's phone number on the caller ID, I often had to refrain from lashing out at whomever was on the other end of the line. Once, though, (laughs) I didn't do a good job. I did speak my mind. I said, my mom isn't scheduled to work today, and it was not without an insignificant amount of attitude. Amma did not like that. Now, when my mother retired after nearly four decades as a nurse, she knew all the physicians, all the nurses, all the staff, even the custodial crew by name. The room at her retirement party was standing room only. Dr. Loth, the physician she'd worked with most frequently, gave a short speech, one that she interrupted about five times when he was unable to remember this or that factoid about the department she'd served for so many years. In some ways, Hers was a strange, unforeseen, but extraordinary path. She was never supposed to have been the one that graduated with a degree, came to America, and become a boss lady. But in other ways, it was as if this was the path she was meant to take all along. Or put another way, it was the path that Sunny chose, not always because she wanted to, but because she felt she had to. And what was it that compelled her so? her patients, her colleagues, her family. My mother's leadership was never more profoundly demonstrated than when my grandmother, her mother, grew ill. Harmony had a long history with diabetes, complications of which required her to take intense levels of steroids. By the time she was in her 80s, her liver began to fail. Every Saturday, Amma gathered up the entire family, and I mean the entire family, my father, brother, aunts, uncle, and all our cousins, and we'd caravan out of the suburbs and into the parking lot of the Korean-run nursing home my grandmother moved into when she could no longer take care of herself. Amma always brought with her a box of fruit or cookies or rice cakes, things that my harmony could share with her roommate or distribute to the nurses who took care of them. Grandma loved making new friends. She loved playing bingo or quietly bragging about her daughter, the nurse, her granddaughter, the lawyer, to anyone who would listen. It was hard for me, though, to see her living in those quarters. I'm sure my parents did the best they could, but it wasn't the four seasons in there, let me tell you. The floors were hard linoleum. The beds were clearly hand-me-downs that had seen better days, and some of the staff were, to put it mildly, unprofessional. I've often heard people say that taking care of elderly parents is one of the most excruciating chapters of one's life. I can hardly imagine how painful it was for my mother to witness my grandmother's decline. Amma had always described Harmony as ferocious, almost frightening. Her toughness and physicality always attributes that were both revered and, to be honest, feared. In many ways, it was my grandmother's metal that allowed my mother's family to survive those early years during the war when food was scarce and survival anything but a foregone conclusion. Amma always told me that grandma liked to throw things at her children, a nearby shoe, a clothes hanger, a piece of food, especially when they asked her for money. My mom would joke, always duck right after asking your grandma for cash. It was hard for me to reconcile my cuddly little harmony 
with this somewhat abusive figure in my mother's life, but then I remember the time my grandmother chased me around the dining table with a mallet when I refused to brush my teeth. Amma showed up every weekend to see Harmony and often dropped in after work by herself without the rest of the family. She'd press her cool hands against Grandma's walnut face to let her know she was there, and Harmony would reach up and wrap her fingers around my mother's. Amma always had a smile for her and a catalog of fresh jokes or stories designed to get Harmony to laugh. My grandmother slipped in and out of coma during her last few weeks. Between her medication and encephalitis, she was almost never fully with us. Rather, she was often caught inside of a dream, or worse, the nightmares that seemed to come to life. She sometimes wept when my mother came to see her, begging her to remove the men who lurked inside her bathroom waiting to kill her. She pawed at the bedsheets as if she were digging a groove in the soil to plant seeds, something I'd seen her do countless times in our backyard. She'd find my mother's hands, latch onto them, and murmur, Sanbi, the persimmons are so large. They are so large and look so sweet. And I knew that she was back in Korea, seeing the huge persimmon trees that used to dot the landscape of her home. In all those years, I only saw my mother cry once when I asked her to translate a poem I'd written for Harmony into Korean. Alma was sitting at the dining table, still in her pale pink nightgown, a cup of tea next to her. I handed her a sheet of paper with my words. Her face remained expressionless, smooth. And then her mouth parted and a small sob escaped. It was like she'd suddenly unlocked a door, one that had been shut for years. And out of it came the stale smell of grief, exhaustion, and despair. But before it grew too heady for me to bear, the door slammed shut once more. Alma put her head down and asked me to grab her a pen so she could begin translating my poem. In looking back at my mother's story, it becomes clear that her choices were so often motivated by love. She loved her mother and thus volunteered to be a son she loved her family and therefore invested in a career that would allow them to escape poverty once and for all. She loved her children, and as a result, even if it meant that she couldn't always be present as she might have wanted to be, she worked her job to her capacity in order to ensure that her kids never had to know the kind of deprivation that she had. Leadership doesn't always need to be flashy or transformative. You don't need to think out of the box, to come up with some big innovation that will make or save a million dollars, or bully people into doing things that they don't want to do. In fact, what I found so powerful about my mother's brand of leadership was how selfless it was. There was very little ego involved in her choices. She didn't lead for self-advancement. She led out of service to those she cherished to ensure their safety above all things. And in the case of my grandmother, her dignity. Whatever doubts she had on her path, and my mother definitely had some big ones, it was always her devotion that propelled her out of her comfort zone, even when it grew rather lonely at the helm. True, 
Leadership can't exist without followers. But leaders are often built when no one's watching. Who do you look up to as a great leader in your own life and why? Are there attributes to this person that you can adopt in your own journey? Or better yet, can you begin trusting that the voice in your head may not be as loud or as flashy as you want it to be, but may be worth listening to? Those are my general thoughts on leadership, all inspired by Will, my former NFL player friend. Hopefully we can have him on the podcast one day soon, and you can hear directly from him on not just these incredible stories from the NFL, but his own ideas of what leadership means to him. Now let's move on to Ask Joanne. As you all know, every week I invite listeners and newsletter subscribers to submit questions they have on any number of issues. Last week, we talked about vegan cooking. This week, Avantika has asked, when it comes to burnout, how do you deal with it when someone you love dismisses your venting if you don't want to cut them out of your life? Well, Avantika, everybody vents, and I mean everybody It is a universally deployed tool for stress relief, a socially acceptable form of vulnerability, and as such, can be an opportunity for bonding. Therefore, when someone dismisses your vent, they are not just dismissing the things you're saying, they're also in some way declining the invitation to be emotionally intimate with you. Now, emotional intimacy doesn't necessarily mean you're in love or you're like BFFs now. Emotional intimacy simply refers to that idea that you're letting someone get a peek or maybe more behind the curtain that typically safeguards your feelings. When someone refuses to take a look after you've gone out on a limb to reveal yourself in that way, it can be hurtful. It can, in fact, feel like a rejection of you. Depending on the kind of relationship you have with the uh, dismisser, let's call them, which sounds fairly close since you don't want to, quote, cut them out of your life, I think the first thing you should try is to be honest with them. Hey, I know I'm venting right now, but I really need someone to listen. It seems you're kind of preoccupied, though. When would be a good time for us to schedule a venting sesh? Something like this gives them the space to say, not right now, while also communicating that you hope they'll join you at some point in the future. The other thing to consider, Avantika, is how often you vent to them. While venting can be a great way to let off steam, sometimes too much steam can harm a person. For instance, I have to be somewhat mindful of how often I confide in my husband. Anthony is, generally speaking, a very positive, optimistic person. I, on the other hand, can be a little mercurial and moody. I am saddled with a lot of self-criticism, which manifests in anxious flashes of pessimism and negativity. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you. I know that if I spout off every time I get upset or start to feel like the world is conspiring against me, this is a phrase I literally used with him this morning, it will inevitably impact his own mood sometimes for the rest of the day. Why? Because he loves me, and it's hard for him to watch me struggle. Good friendship isn't defined by your ability to just say whatever, whenever, however you want. 
That's what some people think, but I don't think that's a really great way to define what good friendship is. Good friendship is about respecting the boundaries that make you, you, and make them, them. And sometimes those boundaries require you to give them a break. Go vent to your diary, another good friend, a close sibling, or even your dog. There's this wonderful episode of Frasier, which is one of our favorite TV shows in all the world, where Frasier unloads on his father's dog, Eddie, in order to alleviate his chronic back pain, which is caused by stress. I often used to take Rudy out for longer walks while listing out all the things that were making me unhappy or anxious, and it honestly made me feel better every single time. Finally, though, if this person fails to meet you halfway, even after you've tried to be mindful of their space and time, well, it's probably a good idea to reevaluate the contours of your relationship. Some people, they're just not capable of being as emotionally available as you desire. They may be grappling with their own anxiety or even trauma, which prevents them from being as engaged with you as you'd like. Now, that doesn't mean you have to cut them off, but it may mean you elect to step back for a while. Putting yourself out there only to be rejected needlessly subjects you to repeated injury, and over time, that injury will generate resentment, which can then turn into bitterness. Resentment and bitterness can destroy friendships. So pull back and invest your emotional energy elsewhere in someone who does have the maturity to meet you where you are. You're not betraying anyone or being a bad friend by doing this. You're just looking out for yourself and preventing the relationship from turning toxic with the hope that one day it'll be the kind of friendship that you've always wanted it to be. Wishing you all the best. Thanks so much, Avantika, for submitting your question to Ask Joanne. If you have a question on which you're seeking some advice, make sure to hit the link below and submit your question today. All right, finally, we're on to updates and random things. What I'm watching. Okay, y'all, I finished Westworld, all four seasons of it. It was very good. And then not as good <laughs> and then a little confusing, but still entertaining. Like at a certain point, I was like, is this even Westworld anymore? But yes, it was still good enough. In some, the first two seasons were excellent. The last two seasons were barely good enough to keep me sticking around. I am, however, hoping for the promised fifth and final season. My understanding is the showmakers are currently in negotiations with HBO on that. I was also inspired to re-watch an episode of Doctor Who, the one featuring Vincent Van Gogh. In case it isn't obvious to you, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. The writing includes one of my most favorite quotes about art, not just about Van Gogh, but about art in general. The curator of a museum is speaking on Vincent Van Gogh, and he says, he transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one will ever do it again. I was so enthralled 
by this episode that I actually went and bought a biography of Vincent van Gogh and got to understand better what that pain was. And he went through a lot of it. As you all probably know, Vincent van Gogh did not live very long. Signed copies of the Korean Vegan Cookbook. So last week was the one-year book anniversary of the Korean Vegan Cookbook. And I can't believe it's been a full year since the book was published. It feels like it was just yesterday. This past weekend, I went into Now Serving LA, a bookstore that features only cookbooks and signed their entire stock. If you're interested in getting a head start on your holiday shopping, which I can't recommend enough, you should order your copy, your signed copy of the Korean Vegan Cookbook today. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below what I'm cooking. So in case you missed it, I made a bunch of new stuff this week, but I was on my 30-day toast challenge kick and someone asked me to incorporate an Indian-style boiled potato stuffed toast into my 30-day toast challenge. And I said, you know what? That will challenge me. I don't make Indian food often enough. And part of it is because I always end up burning everything (laughs) You know, James Beard award-winning cookbook author burns food. <laughs> but, I, you know, the, the spices, I always end up putting too much and it just it doesn't come out right. And then the texture gets off and like, I'm like, definitely something burned here. <laughs> so I'm always intimidated to make Indian food, but I was like, okay, this is a toast. It should be easy. And sure enough, it was so simple, so tasty, so delicious. I will be including that along with a bunch of other recipes in the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. So make sure to check that out when you have time. Otherwise, you can find a video inspiration for all of these recipes, of course, on my YouTube channel, as well as my Instagram and TikTok. All right, that brings us to the close of updates and random things, which means we are now at Parting Thoughts. The other day, I wrote in my journal that the real thief of my joy has been ego. Now, don't get me wrong. Ego can be a powerful driver of purpose and fulfillment. Indeed, empowerment, one of the core values of the Korean vegan, is all about discovering that vast reservoir of agency that we carry inside us, oftentimes without knowing it, much less using it. I'm talking about the other side of ego, the one that gets in the way, strategically places minds that will detonate when you can least afford a setback. This other side to ego foments jealousy and envy, entitlement and resentment. Too often, we think that ego is susceptible only to inflation, but a toxic ego can also lead to imposter syndrome, crippling insecurity, and the inability to truly know one's worth. I've been working a lot on challenging the instinct to define myself based upon external metrics. And (laughs) let me tell you, this is not easy to do when your entire business depends upon views, clicks, and likes, and your business is essentially you. I have to remind myself that Joanne exists outside of what I build, how much money I have in the bank, and the followers I have on Instagram. I think this same exercise can be useful no matter what you do 
Remind yourself that there's a you that exists outside of your job, your company, your parenthood, being a spouse or partner, or whatever it is you feel defines you from the outside looking in. But then the inevitable question arises, well, who is that person? I was surprised to discover that I didn't really have a ready answer to this question. When stripped of all third-party signifiers of value, I realized that I didn't really know who I was. In an effort to streamline some of my internal monologue and to be quite honest, relieve some stress, I downloaded this app that encourages you to journal via voice note every day. Now you all know that I've been keeping a written journal for over three decades of my life and it's something that I always recommend to people. But keeping a voice note journal is a vastly different experience than writing down one's thoughts and I found that listening to my own voice talk about some of the struggles of each day has allowed me to become much more acquainted with this Joanne that no one else ever gets to see. And I don't know, it's sort of like meeting up with this old, old friend, one that I haven't seen in decades. But one thing it taught me almost instantly is that this investigation of who I am, it cannot conclude with just answering that question, who are you? Rather, at the end of each day, I must ask, do you like who you are? And to my surprise and somewhat relief, I'm finding that I do. And there's something incredibly comforting about this, knowing that I'll always have my own back, even if no one else does. Thanks everyone for joining us for our, what is a little bit shorter of an episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. I hope you enjoyed anything that you listened to today. If you did, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and leave a rating or a comment below. If there was a particular portion of this episode or any other episode of the podcast that you found inspiring, please go ahead and share this with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or even on social media. In the meantime, until next week, have a lovely and beautiful, wonderful, happy, joyous day. Mm -hmm.